my name is Steve Elliott. I chaired the program, I've chaired the program committee for this conference, and I would like very much to invite the members of this year's program committee to stand, if you would please, so that you all might see some of your colleagues that put the program together. Thank you. Thank you very much. They've been a great team. Now let, let me ask, let me ask those of you in the audience who have been or will be presenting in this, in sessions to stand. If you're a, a session, these, these are the folks who, who are the meat of the program. Thank you. And finally, uh, let me also um, echo what Cinnamon Catlin Laguto uh, said this morning at the meeting as she extended the invitation for next year's conference, the 2010 conference in Oklahoma City, um, the, the, that will be entitled Winds of Opportunity. Let me invite Cinnamon and the program committee for next year to stand. These are the folks that you want to approach. 2010 program committee, don't be shy. Come on. Come on. Okay. These are the folks that you approach and say, this is what we want next year, or please don't do, you know, whatever we did this year that you didn't like. Um, because, you know, what the association is all about is mounting annual conferences that are not only interested, interesting but very, very useful to us. Well, let's, let's turn to the topic at hand. For history to be a 21st century enterprise, it must be a vital part of our community's identities. Heritage is an intrinsic part of our cultural DNA and a central part of our cultural daily life where we live. Where is this happening? Lots of places, including New York City. Over the last 20 years, the culture of the city has been changing from one that has turned its back on the past to one that engages and celebrates its incredible cultural richness. This has not been easy in a city that's reinvented itself every generation from its time as an obscure Dutch colonial outpost to its current position as an international cultural and economic magnet, where part of the process of reinvention has been the destruction of historic neighborhoods and architectural treasures in the name of progress century after century. But there has been a revival, an interest in the city's history from the thousands of books, exhibitions, websites, and blog posts to meetup groups where people can learn about a huge array of subjects as diverse as cultural politics, the Civil War, and the rise of mass media. And perhaps most impressive in this effort are the thousands of micro-histories that have been created of neighborhoods, industries, and individuals that have preserved a long-neglected cultural legacy. This renaissance in New York City has created an atmosphere where New Yorkers of all kinds, be they lifelong residents or newly arrived immigrants, are insisting on the preservation of this legacy and are using it to attract tourism and to build businesses and support the arts and humanities and enrich their lives every day. This has been the result of many people's work, from a Jane Jacobs who faced down the most powerful men in 1960s New York politics to prevent an expressway from destroying her neighborhood, 
to a Ken Jackson, the nationally known Columbia University professor whose writings and research have inspired a generation of scholarly interest in New York City history, to Mike Wallace, another of this group of dedicated historians and founder of the Gotham Center in New York City. The Gotham Center is hosted by the City University of New York's Graduate Center and is dedicated to making the city's rich and fascinating past more accessible to people by providing a forum where scholars, history buffs, museum professional, professionals, filmmakers, and others can share and present the past to better inform the present. Mike received his undergraduate and graduate degrees at Columbia University, studying with Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Richard Hofstetter, with whom he collaborated on A History of American Violence, published by Knopf in 1970. He helped found and for 30 years helped publish and edit the Radical History Review. You may know him for his essays that explored the ways history is used and abused in American popular culture, including pieces on Disney World, Colonial Williamsburg, the Enola Gay Controversy at the Smithsonian, and Historic Preservation. These were collected and published in Mickey Mouse History and Other Essays on American Memory in 1997. You may even recall him as a speaker at AASLH in 1988. Mike is the author of A New Deal for New York, which examines the future of post-September 11 Gotham in light of its past. A distinguished professor of history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a part of CUNY, he is the co-author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Gotham, A History of New York to 1898. You know, Pulitzer Prize, that's not bad for a local history, is it? And, and he's now at work on the second volume of Gotham, which will cover the story from 1898 through the Second World War. Today, Mike will cover a lot of ground, I expect. He'll be speaking, uh, including speaking to us about the current state of public history in New York City, including the many outreach projects at Gotham Center, building effective partnerships and creating a wealth of community-based projects, including history festivals, neighborhood history conversations, documentary film projects. And he will focus on a major new exhibit, Nueva, Nueva York, co-developed by the New York Historical Society and El Museo del Barrio, which will tell the little-known story of the influence that New York City's Latino population has had upon the growth and development of the city from 1624 through World War II. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a pleasure to welcome Mike Wallace. I'm going to begin, how's my mic? We doing all right? Uh, I'm uh, going to begin on a biographical note. My birthday falls on July 22nd. As astrological buffs will know, this puts me on the cusp between Cancer and Leo. I'm honestly not much taken with astrology, but I have to confess its remarkable applicability in my particular case, especially when it comes 
to characterizing my relation to doing history. When I look back at my personal trajectory, I note an oscillation between periods when, crab-like, I withdraw into my shell and read and write away on my chosen theme of the history of New York City, and other periods when, in more lionish mode, I prefer to roar about in public arenas, usually in collaboration with others, doing what has come to be called public history. To be sure, the notion that scholarly labor is solitary and monk-like while working with museums, historical societies, newspapers, and filmmakers immerses you in the wider world seriously overstates the division between these two modes. To write an article or a monograph or a synthesis is, in fact, to be part of a huge collective project. Seated at one's desk, you are engaged in conversation with the army of scholars, living and dead, upon whose work you draw. Think footnotes. More broadly, the questions and subjects the historian tackles are to some degree shaped by the temper and concerns of the times, by what's happening in the larger public arena. The reverse is true as well. Creating exhibitions and documentary films would not happen were it not for the solitary labors of all those individual investigators. So in my, my in-your-stars distinction between crab and lion, between academic and public history, only takes us so far. Yet in my case, cuspiness gets at something important. I've often found myself turning from one mode to the other and back again, a restlessness that at times slows down projects on both sides of the divide. But I like to think that any diminution in quantity of output has been offset by the enhancement of quality that flows from the interaction between the two practices, the way they feed and support one another. Indeed, I think that the overcoming of real or supposed divisions between academic history and public history has characterized and hopefully strengthened much of my work. I entered the history biz in the 1960s and 70s as a graduate student at Columbia at a time when developments in the wider political and cultural world were provoking our generation of historians to transform the American story prodded by various social and political movements, we added previously underplayed or ignored subjects to the domain of history, blacks, women, gays, immigrants, etc., and opened up subjects with a capital S, sexuality, consumerism, ecology, imperialism, working class culture, etc., that expanded the purview of the field. In the process... We dramatically, if at first implicitly, rewrote the national narrative. At the same time, this new scholarship began to inform museology and popular culture, partly thanks to a growing traffic back and forth in personnel. At Columbia, I had been involved in the events of 1968 as a fair-weather communard, the building where the history department hung its hat. It was a transformative experience in many ways, but perhaps most significantly in bringing together a constellation of young historians and analogously economists, anthropologists, political scientists, etc., 
who began working together on a collective effort undergirded by new institutions to refashion the history-making project. With colleagues at Columbia and other institutions and in tandem with non-academic historical practitioners, we created a journal, the Radical History Review, officially founded in 1973, but actually an outgrowth of the Radical Historian's newsletter set up in 1969. We also set up a rudimentary national historical network, MARHO, that was an alternative to established professional organizations themselves in rapid recomposition and reorientation. Together, we set out to organize and promote this process of collective rethinking. From my vantage point, as an editor and an organizer, it was relatively easy to see that the assembled output of a burgeoning number of scholars in an expanding number of fields, making reassessments of eras up and down the chronological scale, had in fact reconstituted, albeit in a piecemeal fashion, the overarching storyline inherited from the prior generation. We had, in effect, assembled a new narrative, which now needed to be written down to make it a public fact and allow it to be evaluated and to serve as a spur to ongoing research. I was hardly alone in this assessment. Calls for stitching together the new patches into a new quilt were widespread. But I was inspired particularly by my mentor, Richard Hofstadter, who had set out to do a three-volume history of the United States, only to die at age 54, tragically, before more than a handful of chapters had been completed. So, uh, though relatively wet behind the ears, I and my friend and colleague Ted Burroughs set out to take a crack at synthesizing the extant labors of our generation. After spending a few years on a national narrative without getting out of the 17th century, we realized that at this rate it would take at least 11 lifetimes and we only had two to spare. So, after another year of being depressed, uh, we decided to decant all we had done into what in our naivete seemed a more manageable project, the history merely of a single city. And so in the late 70s, I settled down in crab mode to work with Ted on what became Gotham, a history of New York City to 1898. At the same time, however, I and my RHR colleagues, notably Roy Rosenzweig, who died two years ago at 57, became fascinated by the uses and abuses of history in the public arena. We began analyzing the kinds of political messages embedded in popular historical culture. We also tracked the ongoing transformations being wrought in, for example, history museums by a new generation of curators who were expanding the purview of their institutions, again, both in subjects and capital S subjects. And again, as in the academic profession, these developments went hand in hand with the seismic events taking place in the wider world. Paradigmatically, I argued, in the impact of the civil rights movement on institutions like Colonial Williamsburg. The repositioning of museums simultaneously took place in interaction with practitioners remaking the scholarly arena. The RHR was involved here, too, along with new journals like the Public Historian in 1978. And I became something of a critical analyst and historian working in this new field, partly 
because it gave me a chance to get out of the house, to switch into lion mode, undertaking field trips to Orlando and Williamsburg and to museums and historic sites across the country and abroad. Uh, I produced essays on Colonial Williamsburg in 1981, Disney World 1985. I analyzed the history of historic preservation in 1986. I contributed to several collections presenting the past in 86, um, past meets present in 87, history museums in the United States in which John Herbst and I had contributions. And I began lecturing widely on the politics and practice of public history, both in academic forums and before organizations of museum or media professionals. Indeed, it was 20 years ago today, actually it was in 1988, but I couldn't resist the quote, that you were kind enough to invite me to give that year's keynote address in Rochester. In 1996, I collected some of these pieces, added some new ones, including a 95 analysis of the controversies surrounding the Smithsonian's Enola Gay exhibit, and published Mickey Mouse History and other essays in, on American memory. But by that point, I had dialed back from lion to crab in a final push to finish Gotham, apart from a stint conveniently spread out over several years of working with Rick Burns on producing a very lengthy PBS documentary, New York, for which I and Ken Jackson, the dean of New York City historians, served as co-chief scholars, and to which, on which, in which, I nattered interminably on camera. Happily, this particular public project dovetailed much more thoroughly with my academic work than most of my other public uh, history initiatives. So when Gotham One rolled down the ways in 1999, in the brief interregnum that followed before I embarked on Gotham Two, an even crabbier enterprise than the first one, being a solo voyage, I inclined myself back toward the public arena. Partly again, this was a dialectical affair, given that the interest in New York history generated by the book and the film and Ken's Encyclopedia of New York project seemed to create an opening for a new kind of lionish historical intervention. So it's this last 10-year stretch that I've been asked to talk about. Uh, I'm honestly not convinced that the remainder of my remarks will be of particular interest or usefulness, given that I'm reasonably sure that much of what I and my colleagues have been doing in New York, you and your colleagues have been doing in your own base of operations, though admittedly some of what we were doing was relatively unique, given that the situation in, in New York back then was, alas, relatively unique as well. In any event, for what it's worth, here's an account of what I've been up to in public history land over the last decade. In 2000, I was asked by David Nassau and Steve Breyer, then respectively the History Department Chair and Vice Chancellor of the City University of New York Graduate Center to undertake some regular public programming, perhaps something similar to the Radical History Forum, which I had run back in the day. And though my crab side wanted to scuttle off back to the library, its lion counterpart overroared and overruled, and I agreed to establish what I suggested be called the Gotham Center for New York City History. The Graduate Center would provide office space and make available its splendid public auditoriums. Uh, Dr. Louise Muir, then Vice Chancellor of the City University, gave me a line to use for an Associate Director, 
And in my smartest move of the last 10 years, I invited Dr. Suzanne Wasserman, a graduate of NYU's Ph.D. in public history programs, to assume that role, and luckily for the enterprise, she agreed. She's since then, in fact, uh, relieved me uh, of directorial duties, and I have risen to the level of founder uh, and, uh, and wheeled out on ceremonial occasions and also run the, the board that we put together, which I found to be very useful, uh, including uh, uh, people like the late Brooke Astor, Rick Burns, um, Martin Scorsese, uh, the other Mike Wallace, etc., etc. These are people who were all promised they had to do absolutely nothing uh, except let me have their name for the letterhead. Uh, letterheads are useful. Uh, we did a round of initial fundraising. The letterhead was useful. Uh, CUNY's centers uh, were and are on their own in terms of operating expenses and thought about our first move. My sense of the Gotham Center's mission, apart from some as yet indeterminate public programming, was shaped by what I consider to be New York City's ambivalence about its own history, indeed about the past in general. The city's civic and commercial cultures, after all, have tended to focus resolutely on the future, followed closely by the present, with little interest in or time devoted to looking backward, a practice that indeed was in some quarters considered positively counterproductive. I'm thinking in particular of Wall Street. Our bankers and brokers have tended to resist glancing over their shoulder lest the contemplation of previous economic catastrophes sickly o'er their native hue of resolution, which is to, make enormous, to take enormous speculative risks with other people's money and thus lose the name of action. There are interesting exceptions, to be sure. I was recently invited by Goldman Sachs to speak to their chief economists and partners, some of the last masters of the universe left standing, um, uh, about uh, New York, how New York City uh, had fared during past crises. Uh, in, in, I don't know, but perhaps their sensitivity, unusual sensitivity to historical uh, context, uh, has to do with, in fact, why they've weathered the storm better than uh, many others, I don't know. But New York's ahistorical penchant is larger than just Wall Street. It's bred deeper in the bone. It's part of our cultural DNA. This habit of mind has many sources, but is ultimately rooted, I think, in the nature of capitalist society, its willingness, eagerness to erase any inherited beliefs or boundaries that stand in the way of profit, creative destruction, and all that a predilection that in terms of urban ecology leads to a constant rearrangement of the cityscape. In New York, this phenomenon was rooted and worried, uh, was noted and worried about way back during at least one of the first great antebellum boom periods. In 1845, former Mayor Philip Hone worried about the, quote, fluctuation and never-ceasing change of life in Gotham. Quote, overturn, overturn, overturn is the maxim of New York, he said. The very bones of our ancestors are not permitted to lie quiet a quarter of a century, and one generation of men seems studious to remove all relics of those who precede them. Putnam's Magazine in, 19, in 1853 fretted that the businesses spreading with, quote, such astounding rapidity over the whole lower part of the city 
We're prostrating and utterly obliterating everything that is old and venerable and leaving not a single landmark in token of the former position of the dwelling places of our ancestors. The result, said Harper's Monthly in 1856, was that, quote, New York is notoriously the largest and least loved of any of our great cities. Why should it be loved as a city? It is never the same city for a dozen years together. A man born in New York 40 years ago finds nothing, absolutely nothing, of the New York he knew. An overstatement, but... These voices were not only descriptive, but prescriptive. They warned that the city's relentless focus on the future was ravaging its past, undermining the sense that New York was a home, not just a grid of opportunities. And indeed, in that era, though dominated by the booster mentality, witnessed the emergence of counter-trends, movements to preserve, understand, and celebrate the city's past, the rise of promoters of an alternative historical sensibility, which I'll call, very loosely indeed, the party of remembering, as opposed to the party of forgetting. Walt Whitman, though a hell of a booster himself, was an early charter member of the party of remembering, concerned about the city's obliteration of its past. It's, quote, rabid, feverish, itching for change. And this was an era in which uh, a sense of nostalgia emerged for an older, quieter, and more comprehensible city, and it fostered efforts at commemoration. Guidebooks appeared, walking tours of historic sites such as remained. The clerk of the Common Council began issuing woodcuts and lithographic reproductions of old paintings, prints, drawings, maps, and documents. Efforts were made to preserve old structures. Painters and playwrights began tackling historical subjects. Autobiographies bloomed. And uh, the New York Historical Society took on many new members in the 1840s and 50s, and the state legislature spurred historical scholarship uh, by paying to assemble and print documents relating to New York's colonial history. Uh, one could spin out a Manichaean progressive era style historiography around the battles between the memory and forgetting parties, exploring how and why their relative strength waxed and waned, the triumph of modernist erasures in the Moses era, the resurgence of preservationist values in the Jacobsian sequel, and try to tie all of this to changing economic and cultural conditions. But I won't. I will jump over all these naughty issues uh, and get back down to the millennial year 2000 when I was pondering the mission of the newly minted Gotham Center. The facts on the ground, therefore, included the same two strains in metropolitan culture, with Wall Street and modernizers on one side and on the other a panoply of history museums, historical societies, historic sites, landmark buildings and districts, plus an innumerable array of neighborhood history buffs and a large body of professional historians who studied, preserved, and presented its past in books, journals, dissertations, websites, and a host of civic and history-inflected institutions. Having long since enlisted with the party of memory against the party of forgetting, it seemed to me that one problem which faced the former group's congeries of institutions and individuals was that they had less collective impact than they could have and should have. 
In part, this was because they were widely dispersed over five boroughs and among dozens of different colleges, cultural centers, and community organizations. While decentralization and specialization are sources of real strength, they can lead as well to a diminished presence, especially in a cacophonous metropolis replete with competing voices. In addition, though links between academic and public historians had been much improved since the 1950s, thanks to a generation's worth of labor, including many of the people in this room, think the regular reviews in professional journals of museum exhibits that were once flagrantly, preposterously ignored, think the routine involvement of academics in exhibit preparation. Still, remnants of the former scholarly public divide still remained, an echo of C.P. Snow's two cultures. It seemed to me, moreover, that in New York, as throughout the rest of the country, an enormous body of history fans existed. Nationally, I had heard, more people went to history-related sites than attended sports events. But they had a far lower public profile. They didn't get no respect. And apart from preservationists, they had little collective agency. They were more a market for consumables than a constituency with an agenda. So it seemed to me that one worthwhile contribution the Gotham Center could make would be to facilitate cooperation between the institutions and individuals who were writing, producing, and teaching the history of New York to help the city's many history makers coordinate and publicize existing activities and to generate appealing new ones and to involve large numbers of New Yorkers in the history-making process, bringing them into dialogue with academic and public historians, something that is rather on the order of what the AASLH has been doing since 1940. We decided we'd better start off with a big bang. Something of the sort seemed necessary if we were to make a dent in a big town. So we decided to hold a history festival. It was conceived as a conglomeration of things, in part the biggest academic conference ever held on New York City history. Neither Ken Jackson, who agreed to serve as co-chair, nor I, nor other grizzled veterans could remember any predecessor remotely approaching this scale. In part, it would to be a civic conclave, in part a popular celebration. We made common cause with virtually every single history-making outfit in town. Museums, colleges, historical societies, neighborhood organizations, historic houses, etc., etc. And also with history producers, be they professionals or amateurs, working in schools and universities or in the press and the media, etc., etc. Working on any aspect of the city's history in any and all time periods. And with historical actors as well as analysts from an amazing variety of walks of metropolitan life. A smorgasbord, in other words, lavish enough to attract both scholars, history professionals, and the attention of the general public. We planned 102 sessions, formal academic presentation, informal conversations between scholars, civic activists, and policymakers, dramatic and musical performances, film and video screenings, and new media presentations. In a keynote event, Martin Scorsese and I would discuss the director's soon-to-be-released Gangs of New York, and he would show some clips the first time ever seen in public.
In addition, there would be workshops, walking tours, children's programs, a book fair, and a host of cognate gatherings around town. We also raised sufficient funds to hire crack event organizers so the jamboree would run smoothly, and we arranged to have every session audio taped and CDs made available for sale. It was a spectacular success. I must say, the weekend attracted over 5,000 participants, buffs and teachers, preservationists and academics, historically curious residents and tourists, civic elites and civic activists. Then, throughout the subsequent week, 100 institutions in all five boroughs, including schools, libraries, museums, historic sites, and community organizations, hosted activities for school children, history fans, and neighborhood residents. Some of the festival's success was due to its tragic fortuitousness, taking place as it did from October 5th, October 14th, 2001, in the absent shadow of the Twin Towers. The catastrophe had immediately drawn uh, me and the, the new Gotham Center into its wake as we sought ways to make ourselves useful as historians. The day after September 11th, I was invited by the New York Times to write an op-ed piece, which on the 16th they published. Uh, my effort at setting the events in some uh, historical uh, uh, perspective. Um, but apart from such personal reflections, um, the festival organizers quickly pulled together a top-flight array of historians who, by October, were able to present a series of much more coherent and thoroughgoing papers. But far more important than these interventions, the conference served a psychic and social need. As people began sticking their heads up, literally and metaphorically, and looking around at the devastated geographic and psychic landscape, they were eager to come together in public and ponder the city's situation. And we, fortuitously, were there to provide a venue. The city's government facilitated and appreciated this role, with Mayor Rudy Giuliani declaring the festival's duration to be New York City History Week, and the city council's issuing a post-event proclamation thanking the Gotham Center for having provided such a public service. Relations with Giuliani, I must add parenthetically, went rapidly downhill after that, over yet another issue that lay at the border between scholarly concerns and issues of wider public import. Uh, as some of you may know, on his last day in office, having failed to win an unconstitutional extension of his term, Giuliani had a truck backed up to City Hall, onto which he had all his mayoral papers offloaded and whisked away to a high-security warehouse in Queens. Then he announced he would relieve the overburdened municipal archives, victims of his own budget cutting, of the task of processing them. Meanwhile, his people began looking about for an institution, the New York Public Library, Columbia University, anybody who would house a Giuliani Institute, which would in turn house the papers, serving as his intellectual capital, so to speak. Uh, this was a complete break with the tradition of immediately sending all papers to the municipal archives, thus keeping them under public care and scrutiny, which had been established by, in fact, uh, his hero, Fiorello LaGuardia, back in the 1930s. 
dupes would be sent to the municipal archives, it was promised, but of course there would be no way of knowing if everything that had gone from Manhattan to Queens would come back from Queens to Manhattan. The chain of custody had been irretrievably broken. And as this was a man who had zealously withheld information, even the most trivial, from the press and other government agencies, legally entitled to get it, spawning many lawsuits, all of which he lost at considerable public expense, it seemed to me he was not the appropriate guardian of his own legacy. Giuliani's, by the way, was a more direct action version of what Bush, too, had done with his gubernatorial papers and then reiterated with his quasi-royal edict of November 2001, overriding the law requiring that presidential papers be opened after 12 years and expanding the power of former chief executives and their heirs and their vice presidents to restrict access to the records indefinitely. Bush did this just at the moment that the Reagan administration papers were due to be opened. One of President Obama's first acts was to reverse Bush's executive order. I, I find it interesting the number of times that new uh, presidents turn almost immediately to some kind of statement which signals their position on matters historical. Uh, thus, uh, Ronald Reagan's virtually first act was to order the picture of Harry Truman uh, and Thomas Jefferson taken down from the cabinet room uh, and replaced by that of Calvin Coolidge. Uh, so the, uh, the historian world made a ruckus uh, in tandem with the outraged professional archivist community. We got a petition going, held a press conference on the steps of City Hall, and worked with the city council to pass a law which the new mayor, Bloomberg, signed outlawing this private appropriation of public papers in the future. Despite this, Giuliani and I saw eye to eye on yet another history-tinged matter, the question of what to do with ground zero. Whenever asked, I would say I thought nothing should be done there, that we should plant grass, plunk down a colossal shard from the ruins of the towers, and then wait 20 years or so. Certainly, we should not immediately set about building unnecessary office space. Giuliani at that point agreed with not so much me, but with families of the victims who were arguing something similar, uh, uh, defending uh, the notion that this was now a sacred space uh, which should be defended against the workings of the market. There was still another historical issue arose around Ground Zero. In response to a call that cultural institutions relocate to Lower Manhattan, I propose that the New York Historical Society and the Museum of the City of New York join forces to construct a state-of-the-art history center, which would include a permanent exhibition on the history of New York City, badly needed, still badly needed, that would become an essential stop on any tourist agenda, and which would include a section detailing the story of Lower Manhattan, and within that tell the story of the Twin Towers. We got a group of prominent historians to sign on to this. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg and the council leaders, I was given to understand, approved the idea. But in the end, we couldn't get the two institutions to come together. Uh, I didn't feel too badly about this. Uh, my consolation being that Robert Moses had tried many times to merge the two organizations, and he had failed too. The last September 11th historical project in which the new Gotham Center got involved was more fruitful, at least in the long term. 
After the attack, various citizens' groups, both long established and newly organized, commenced a series of public discussions about how to reconstruct downtown and what the priorities for rebuilding should be. Some of us saw the way the catastrophe had cracked open conventional ways of thinking as having provided an opportunity to tackle the reconstruction, not just of downtown, but of the city itself. We wanted to put back on the public table issues like the provision of affordable housing and the strengthening of the city's dilapidated physical and social infrastructure, issues which had gotten short shrift during the reign of the free marketeers. I thought it would be useful to remind people that public investment was as much a part of the American tradition and certainly the New York tradition since at least the days of the Erie Canal as were private initiatives, though that aspect of our heritage had been effectively effaced by the ideological privateers who had dominated the public conversation since the mid-1970s. In particular, I thought it would be helpful to resurrect the forgotten story of what the New Deal had done for the country and, a fortiori, what the WPA had done for Gotham. So I wrote a short intervention that I called A New Deal for New York, which suggested the relevance of revisiting the history of the 1930s. I summarized the various proposals also that citizen activists were putting on the table at that present time. I had been considering bringing out the text as an 18th century style pamphlet when a talented young publisher wandered into the Gotham Center with the proposal that we start off a Gotham Books publication program and we decided we would make this the first offering. Uh, we produced it in record time. The reviewers were kind. The idea of thinking boldly about the city's needs and those of other recession then to strapped municipalities across the country uh, received considerable attention. Locally, it was read by the mayor, the city councilors, various figures in the city's labor, business, and political establishments, and the activist community whose work I was largely summarizing. This then gave me the idea of trying to further this larger project of reviving and upgrading and making new to the times uh, the old New Deal era approaches uh, to contemporary problems. The Gotham Center accordingly put together an all-day conference to consider the project of what we call the New New Deal. It was held on November 22, 2002, brought together historians like Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., uh, business leaders like the head of the New York City Partnership, the David Rockefeller established uh, a business group, labor leaders like Bruce Rayner, president of Unite, various Congress people, many, many other people. And we reviewed and rehearsed what the New Deal's accomplishments were, what its, in fact, failings were, uh, and tried to suggest the possibilities of appropriating uh, the best from it uh, uh, and applying them to the contemporary situation uh, and we ended with some consideration by experts on uh, what the politics of the possible would be, how much of this could we conceivably actually get done. At that point, actually, it seemed more like the politics of the impossible. Uh, and alas, the notion of a new New Deal went absolutely nowhere, still being outside the boundaries of responsible thinking, which favored letting the free market continue to work its magic. What a difference a crash makes. Suddenly, the Klieg lights 
came on, you know, a year or two ago. TV specials flooded the tube. Books popped out. FDR was in the headlines again. Uh, and uh, a new New Deal rubric uh, was uh, suddenly uh, everywhere. Uh, and, and I'm not claiming ownership of this. New New Deal goes back a long way. Truman started it, really. Um, but it is, it's fascinating to me the degree to which we have a prairie fire culture. And while it looks as if we are trapped in a particular kind of perspective, uh, the ability, as it were, to collectively be born again uh, is remarkable. Uh, we have a very, it's one of the, the upsides of not perhaps being so profoundly rooted in a historical uh, trajectory. It does provide a certain flexibility in the present. So after that extremely busy first 2001-2002 season, the History Festival and the New New Deal Conference became, in effect, model for our now ongoing public events. Uh, one of the uh, central uh, functions that we uh, serve is to uh, mount a, a series of regular history forums, really every couple of weeks, uh, three weeks. Uh, they're open to the public. They're free of charge. They're held in the CUNY Graduate Center. It's got a variety of spaces. They can seat from 100 to 400. Uh, and we steadily fill them at, at a rate somewhere approaching 90% or above uh, with constituencies that certainly do include academics and students but are overwhelmingly drawn uh, from uh, the, the, the general public. The, after we got going, uh, a variety of media began uh, announcing it, so you can see them in the New York Times and Time Out, assorted media, and so forth. Um, so it means that we get an amazing array, not always a lot of overlap, depends on the subject. So when Graham Russell Hodges gave a talk on his new book, Taxi, A Social History of the New York City Cab Driver, it was no surprise to find the room full of taxi drivers uh, and union organizers as well. But many of the forums, and this is, I think, what makes them, you know, particularly uh, uh, unique, hopefully useful, uh, is that we spend a lot of evenings attempting to provide some historical context for discussing contemporary issues. And we often try to mix together historians and policymakers and activists. By way of some examples, in the sphere of city planning, we had a forum called, shortly after she died, Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses, How Stands the Debate, in which we asked a stellar group of historians, architects, planners, politicians, community activists, and developers whose urban vision dominated Gotham's contemporary approaches to city building. We've devoted a great deal of attention, more on this in my last act uh, today, uh, to the third great wave of immigration currently underway, uh, as with, for instance, an evening entitled Gotham's Newest Newcomers, the Impact of the Post-1965 Immigrants on New York City and Vice Versa in which historians, political scientists, the city's official demographer first offered general and comparative perspectives followed by presentations from specialists on particular uh, immigrant populations. Crime keeps popping up as a topic, partly because I teach a course on the history of crime in New York City. And we've had evenings devoted to the rise, decline, and resurgence of organized crime, the history and future of heroin in New York, the history of police violence in New York City since the 1880s, 
on the take labor union corruption in New York City, past, present, and future, with, I must say, uh, several leaders of the New York City municipal labor movement uh, uh, present. Uh, we often do this trying to provide different points of view on any given topic. One evening was devoted to an assessment of the uh, John Lindsay's mayoralty. It featured opponents, Vincent Canato, a critical biographer, and Fred Siegel on record as having suggested that Lindsay's was the worst mayoralty in the history of the city. While the other side was ably upheld by Lindsay's deputy mayor, Richard Aurelio, and Stephen Eisenberg, Lindsay's chief of staff. The changing macroeconomic structure of Gotham preoccupies us, and we've had assessments called sweatshops then, sweatshops now, history and prospects of the maritime port, with the president of the Municipal Arts Society, uh, leading historian Jameson Doig, the chief of planning of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, uh, etc. Uh, others in that vein, why did the computer revolution take place in Silicon Valley, not Silicon Alley, and what will be the relation between the two in the future? Okay. Um, well, also, I should say, cultural dimensions. Are, it's not all you know, economics and, and politics. Uh, we do things like fiction on the, and the city, an evening uh, with writers Kevin Baker, Pete Hamill, Peter Quinn, Beverly Swirling, Meredith Tax, Louise Auchincloss. We had an evening on the Spanish-speaking literary tradition in Nueva York. Uh, more on that in a minute. Uh, we've had Gotham poetry and history. We've had from bamba to hip-hop, a history of Latino music in New York City since the 1920 with a live band, sort of like, you know, Bernstein's old Young People's Concerts, uh, illustrating the various transformations. This was the first time there had been dancing in the aisles of the City University Graduate Center's new building. Uh, we had a celebration of the 75th anniversary of Yip Harburg's Brother Can You Spare a Dime. We had an exploration of 70s punk culture with legends Lenny Kay, Legs McNeil, and graffiti artist Fab Five Freddy. Well, etc. This goes on. Um, we set up a website. I won't go on about this. It's there should you be interested in looking at it. So, in fact, are archives of all of these forums. So, in fact, is an archive of all of the uh, uh, festival uh, papers. Uh, uh, but also, just to let you, it's, it is, by the way, uh, GothamCenter.org. Alas, uh, not com as it makes no money. Uh, it has a couple of things which we found uh, are, uh, get a lot of response. One of them is a calendar. Uh, this is aimed at would-be time travelers to New York's past. It's a, uh, a listing of all upcoming events, ex exhibitions, talks, uh, tours uh, at the museums, societies, libraries, archives, universities, colleges, neighborhood groups. Uh, people send in things to be posted, but our uh, staff, uh, really a part-time graduate student, uh, uh, goes through and keeps this up to date. There's a device there which means that you can click on Thursday, October 4th, or whatever, and up will pop whatever is, in fact, on uh, that particular day. Uh, secondly, uh, we have a, a resource guide that, in fact, is searchable, uh, um, but breaks down resources into various categories. So uh, on this are information about 
26 libraries, 39 museum collections, 40 community and thematic history groups. This, by the way, is one easy way of making visible the diversity of resources uh, and bringing them together in one place. So you see just a few, the Broad Channel Historical Society, the Bronx African American History Project, the Center for Jewish History, City Lore, East Harlem Preservation, Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, the Lower East Side Conservancy, the New York Correction History Society, the Victorian Society's Metropolitan Chapter, I don't know, along with walking tour outfits, uh, 48 of those, uh, historic houses and historic sites, 58, 88 scholars and experts, 107 blogs, and 297 websites. We also put up there lists of books, articles, dissertations culled from my 20,000-item uh, uh, pro-site uh, bibliography. Uh, we list feature films and documentaries made on New York City history, and we have discussion sites. Uh, there were a variety of these. They boiled down to three. The one that's the most interesting, I think, uh, for me and for others, and perhaps is being done, you know, everywhere, is that we invite people to send in their memories about the neighborhood in which they grew up or the experience of moving to a neighborhood or leaving a neighborhood or analyses of how their neighborhood or some neighborhood changed over time, uh, recounting the good stuff and the difficult parts alike. There are at the moment 2,826 threads going. Um, I didn't know there were that many neighborhoods. Uh, in, even in New York City. A lot of the stuff that goes up is nostalgia. Do you remember the ice cream shop on the corner of Pitkin Avenue and so forth? But what's much more remarkable, and I had no idea uh, that this might happen, is that it's become uh, a venue for the most varied kinds of conversations amongst people who in the real world would never talk to one another uh, about the, uh, the history of a particular neighborhood. I only discovered this because uh, I hadn't been paying close attention to what was going up on the side for a while, being in crab mode. Uh, and I uh, uh, was searching for some information on Parkchester, uh, which was a very large development that was built uh, in 39 and 40 by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company uh, up in the Bronx. It was a forerunner to Stuyvesant Town, which was my real target in writing this particular chapter because it was a whites-only uh, affair. And I wanted to just check to see whether Parkchester, I was pretty sure it was whites-only too, but I wanted to just check. So I Googled it. And the first item that pops up is the Gotham Center's discussion group on Parkchester, about which I was completely ignorant. And there were hundreds of entries that went on over several years. Uh, and they were from people who were engaged in furious, not always literate, uh, uh, conversation with one another. They had been whites people who said, yes, by God, it was only whites. And that was the glory days. And then, you know, you people came in. Well, the you people were there, too. Uh, and there were blacks and there were Hispanics and there were Arabs. And it was, it's this wild cacophony, uh, you know, some of it. Nasty, but just this border uh, side, because we monitor the, the, the site. Um, but as a resource, you know, you can't trust, you can't cite this thing. 
but as a sudden plop into the mind and the historical sensibility of a particular neighborhood, and there's hundreds, thousands of them, um, people have seized upon the availability of this form uh, and, and made it their own. Uh, we have other things, too. We have questions, answers, uh, where people can post questions and then people hopefully post answers, or they don't. Uh, there's some FAQs, but not so many. Uh, we've started a Gotham history blotter, which uh, uh, asks for and get really quite remarkably well-written short nonfiction essays about New York City history. Uh, we pay some attention to our particular neighborhood, which is 34th Street and 5th Avenue, Kitty Corner from the Empire State Building in the old B. Altman department store. Uh, so we have uh, one program called Remember Me to Herald Square, uh, which concentrates on the history of the neighborhood. We have started a garment industry history initiative, uh, which uh, looks not as usual, although we've had many panels on this at the garment workers, uh, but the garment manufacturers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a crowded web. Um, uh, last item uh, on this, and then to the finale, um, uh, teaching. Uh, this is not going to come as anything uh, new. I'm sure you're all busy doing a great deal more than this. New York City history is mandated by the state's uh, K-12 curriculum, but only formally in the fourth grade uh, and sporadically in the seventh, eighth, and eleventh there's no coherent approach to teaching the city's history. They're all test-driven. The tests are key to national uh, events and historiography. So no interesting materials were developed officially for teachers to use. But we discovered pretty quickly, once we got rolling, that there was a small cadre of guerrilla New York City historians working in the school system who had on their own developed quite remarkable materials uh, and so we began convening conclaves where hundreds of these people would take a Saturday, no less, a nice day, uh, like no doubt outside now, and sit in a large room uh, and exchange ideas on how one went about doing this. We took this to another step uh, very early on by um, uh, I, I gave a series of talks on New York and the nation in which I tried to pair, you know, the Civil War that's on the official syllabus. Well, let's talk about the draft riots in New York as an example uh, uh, of how you can view the national story through a local uh, lens. Uh, and then uh, we were doing this uh, helter-skelter. We did, in fact, get a little money. We hired Julie Moore as the director of education. Uh, and then came the sainted Senator Robert Byrd, bless his heart, uh, whose uh, Teaching American History grants emerged and uh, allowed us to go to afterburners. Uh, we got, I guess, one of the first two uh, grants in the nation. That was a citywide affair, and we worked with the Board of Education and designed a series of curriculum packages and Gotham Fellows, and we've now served, you know, thousands of history teachers uh, and worked with them on developing their own curriculum and so forth and so on. So, again, but this is, I'm sure, old stuff for you. Uh, now, last. Uh, oops. Here we go. The last item takes us down to now. This is what I'm currently uh, embroiled in, uh, although the roots of it go back to the beginning of the last decade, the period that I've just been uh, focusing on uh, today. 
uh, and to a moment when, for me, the public and the private came together most resoundingly. In 2001, amazingly enough, on September 11th, that was the opening day of a year-long residency, which I was starting on at the New York Public Library's Center for Scholars and Writers. And it was there in the succeeding months that I met and later married one Carmen Bullosa, who was there as a writer, I guess I was the scholar, uh, uh, who was one of Mexico's leading novelists, poets, and playwrights. She's actually now working on a movie script and an opera libretto, a multimedia marvel. Herewith ended the plug for my wife. Um, uh, uh, and uh, she's actually uh, moved to New York uh, and is now a distinguished lecturer at City College of New York in the same CUNY system where I teach. Soon after she decided to stay here, although in fact we uh, have a, a, an apartment down there, so we go back uh, and forth a good deal, uh, Carmen helped put together a small group of people who lived in New York and wrote in Spanish, people with substantial reputations in their country of origin, Peru, Chile, Cuba, Mexico, etc. Partly for Comrade Rhee in the big city, this has often happened in the past, Jose Marti was a member of such a group in the 1880s. Partly also to demonstrate to Anglo-provincial New Yorkers that there was a long history of major Spanish-speaking writers having lived in and written about Gotham, way beyond Marti and Garcia Lorca. Uh, including, you know, I mean, as long as you're armed, Nobel laureates and the rest of it. The New York Times had uh, an online cultural historical map that plotted the houses where famous writers had lived. It included not a single Spanish-speaking author, not even Garcia Lorca or Martí. So her little group, called Café Nueva York, made plans to rectify this, perhaps by putting up plaques on former residences and so forth. Now, I was party to these conversations, many of them being held at our house in Brooklyn, despite my pathetically limited command of Spanish. He estudiado español en mi escuela superior, pero hace 50 años y no recuerdo nada. Es una vergüenza. And I, however, being a historian of New York and a consorter with museums, suggested why not go a step farther? Why not organize an exhibition that would deal not just with writers and artists and musicians from around the Spanish-speaking world who've had, in fact, a tremendous influence on New York's uh, culture uh, uh, and vice versa, but why not treat what the hell, the entire history of New York City's relations with the Spanish-speaking world over the last 400 years, including the concomitant development inside the city of a series of Spanish-speaking communities. It seemed to me that most New Yorkers were quite unaware that there had been an extremely lengthy involvement with Spain and its colonies and then its former colonies, that much of the city's economy and culture had been profoundly impacted by that relationship, and that many of the greatest fortunes in New York City had been made not in the east-west trade with Europe and Africa, but in the north-south connection between Spain's empire and Latin America, 
And I suggested we think about turning the optic 90 degrees uh, in the other direction and reviewing the narrative of the city and, per extension, uh, the country through this different lens, and everything looks different. It seemed especially important to undertake this project to tell this larger story because the city was coming up on becoming one-third Hispanic. And because it seemed to me that New York's leading cultural institutions had not properly registered this fact. Gothamites know perfectly well that we're in the middle of an enormous immigration wave that easily matches that of the 1840s and 50s and the 1890s to 1910s. The evidence is everywhere in the streets, in the subways, in the shops, in the restaurants. But there's no historical context available with which to understand and incorporate this demographic and social phenomenon. So, bit in lion mouth, firmly in mouth, I wrote up an overview narrative of this story, starting with the fact that in its beginnings, New York, then New Amsterdam, was a Dutch colony. The Dutch hated Spaniards. The Dutch hated Catholics. Their worst nightmare was the possibility that the Spanish fleet might sail into New Amsterdam Harbor and seize the town. Nothing, in fact, could have been farther from the empire's mind, uh, which was busily digesting Enormous holdings, you know, mountains of silver in Peru, gold in Mexico, sugar in, in the Caribbean. What did we have? Beavers? Nah. You look at the maps put out by the Spanish, and they're these, you know, enormous central, south, uh, uh, lower North America, and which tapers off until invisibility uh, up in the direction of all the worried little Dutch people. Um, this, despite, therefore, all of the putative tolerance for which the Dutch have lately been seriously overtouted, uh, this was a case of no Spaniards or Catholics need apply. You know, one of those red circles with the slash and some Spaniard with a feathered hat in the middle. Then the English came in. Basically, same story. Uh, one of the biggest nightmares of the Anglo period came in 1741 when there was a supposed slave insurrection, which was made credible to the, uh, you know, uh, folks in the town that the uh, blacks were rising uh, because, in fact, there was a small group of uh, uh, blacks who had been captured off of a Spanish ship who were, in fact, free men, but they decided, well, no, you're in the slavery now. Uh, and they were known as the Spanish Negroes. So when this, there were some fires in the town, the fear was that the Spanish Negroes were rising in conjunction with some white tourists who'd wandered into town who they decided was a Jesuit priest on an undercover mission, uh, and were going to seize the town and turn it over to the king of Spain. In other words, for 200 years, New York was the anti-Spain. Then came the revolution. Spain's our ally. The Catholic Church immediately afterwards comes up from underground. The first church in New York on Barclay Street, literally across the street from ground zero, St. Peter's, was in fact uh, paid for by the king of Spain and by Mexican silver barons. Uh, there is a painting of a crucifixion that was given by the Archbishop of Mexico City in 1789. 
What happens then in the serious nutshell is that the sugar trade which had started with the British Caribbean switches now to the Spanish Caribbean is enough of an opening uh, in the uh, uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico so that the sugar trade begins to seriously take off then starting in 1810 culminating in the 1820s are the series of independence movements throughout Latin America New York City aids and facilitates these John Jacob Astor among others runs guns and ships down to South America They actually also sell guns and ships to the Spanish, uh, being equal opportunity, business is business uh, sorts of folks. Uh, but then once uh, independence is won, we are now sending regular commercial ships down to Veracruz, to Cartagena, to Buenos Aires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and... Uh, At the same time, colonies of Spaniards, Spanish businessmen basically with offices in New York, and uh, Cubans, also merchants, but also rebels. This becomes rebel headquarters, most of them poets, amazingly, uh, from Felix Varela uh, on down to Marti. The rebellion against Spain is, as you know, run out of New York City. 1898 is the headquarters of this operation. New York emerges as the capital of a new empire, uh, replacing uh, Spain uh, in their estimation. And this is, in fact, the beginning of an enormous wave of capital uh, going south. In the sugar business, uh, the Havemeyers build the biggest refinery complexes on earth. The Guggenheims open up mines in Mexico and Peru. Rockefellers in Venezuela looking for oil. The Grace Lines are the huge commercial shipping fleets. There's a guy named Scrimser who literally lays cable all around South America and connects it to New York. The mob eventually goes down to Havana. Uh, Pan American uh, runs the, 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 the great uh, uh, tourist network, and, of course, the banks uh, move south. Uh, many people in New York win political capital as well as other capital. Havemeyer becomes a mayor. Grace becomes a mayor. Teddy Roosevelt, no more need be said. Um, Immigration becomes a larger phenomenon only after the first war when to allow Puerto Ricans the ability to fight and die in the U.S. Army, uh, they're made citizens and then promptly begin to come to New York City in the 1920s. Uh, but in fact, it's really only in the second war where this exhibition is going to stop because after this it would be a lunatic to try to continue. The river of migration now, in fact, spreads out into becoming a vast delta, especially after the uh, 65 law. I proposed this exhibition to Louise Muir at the New York Historical Society. She agreed. We hired a curator, Marcy Raven, from City Lore. I'm the chief historian. Rick Burns is going to do a short film on the post-war era. I urged a collaboration with the Museo del Barrio, because who, after all, was the New York Historical Society founded in 1804, uh, to uh, suddenly be the expert on uh, Latinos in New York. Uh, and the Museo del Barrio agreed. In fact, the exhibition will be housed there. Uh, we're also working to have for 2010, like tomorrow afternoon, uh, when this supposedly is all going to come together, uh, a, a, an outreach. So uh, the Museum of Modern Art is working with us on a segment where we're going to reproduce the 1940 exhibition, 20th Century, 20 Centuries of, of Mexican Art. Uh, the Metropolitan is going to do collateral programming. There are, you know, 10 or 15 museums and probably will be more who are going to do bicentennial events because this is being celebrated all through the Americas and somewhat peculiarly, Spain is celebrating the loss of its empire. 
so I've been having a high old time, I must say. Uh, I went down to Havana, uh, talked with uh, Eusebio Leal, who is the, uh, uh, to call him the chief city historian is to miss the point. He's the guy who's busily reconstructing Havana uh, and has the confidence of both uh, Castro's, uh, uh, and uh, uh, to see if maybe, it's not likely, but they might want to do a little ping-pong diplomacy and loan us the desk at which Jose Marti sat in his office on Front Street when he wrote in 1895 the order launching the rebellion against Spain, which was then rolled in a cigar and sent down by the Cuba mail line uh, uh, from uh, New York to, uh, to Havana. Um, I, I have to say that my crab is seriously worried about all this running around. Uh, I, we've been in Mexico for the last two months. I spent most of my time talking with various museum directors collecting biombos. I didn't even know what they were uh, yeah, from 1690 with fantastic views of Mexico City to make the comparative point that New York in those years was a tiny little four-block-long pipsqueak enterprise at the bottom of Manhattan when, you know, Mexico City and Havana and Potosi, uh, no less. Um, so, uh, on the other hand, there have been benefits. I have been writing in, at this moment on the last chapters of Volume 2, which is on New York and the Second War, and the overlap has been extremely handy, not least in a chapter called Rumba Mania, about the uh, tremendous uh, impact of uh, Cuban uh, uh, music on the New York uh, nightlife scene. Uh, so the, the crab is worried about all this roaring, and the crab is actually at this minute tugging at my sleeve, uh, reminding me that my hour is up. So uh, I, will, um, I will stop. very much. We'll take some questions and comments. Uh-huh. Okay. I, that's if I can see you. Uh, the lights on, on this side are a remarkable screen. So if I don't see you, just shout. Sir. Yes. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have happened. Um, this is obviously a hotly debated uh, uh, subject, and there's no one obvious right answer. One of the biggest problems in the real world is the notion that anybody, any serious corporation, is going to want to rent space on the 88th floor of a lookalike of the trade center is a non-starter. The real estate industry actually was petrified about this, and they wouldn't say anything because they're all skyscraper, you know, colleagues together. Uh, but there's an enormous oversupply of office space in New York. The idea of dumping another 10 million square feet on the market uh, sent, you know, shivers up and down their spine. Uh, and the early plans began to be remade constantly to take 
this into account, the security question. Uh, and the nice, graceful thing, et cetera, that Leapskin and company uh, uh, confected is no more. Now it's a colossal bunker, you know. Uh, plus, they're going to have to cordon off the entire area the way they have the Wall Street area cordoned off. Um, I, I just think it's, it's, uh, it's a false bravado. Uh, I mean, yes, you can say we're hanging a big target, you know, uh, try it again. Uh, but uh, in the real world, people don't like to live like that. Uh, so, yes, there's certainly sentiment for that. And, you know, on odd moments, I, I share it. I understand that, you know, in-your-face uh, kind of response. Um, but there are many people who think that a lot of that money would be better spent rethinking the whole function and nature of lower Manhattan. Because the banking industry, uh, let's face it, has been disaggregating out of that area since the 1910s. And in effect, David Rockefeller and friends built the Trade Center, friends including Nelson, who was governor, uh, in an effort to hold uh, uh, that whole center down in, in, in lower Manhattan. And it hasn't worked. And this has only accelerated that. Partly there's the New Jersey uh, uh, movement. Uh, uh, but partly, it's and, and underscored by September 11th, it's just too scary. But also, the amount of office space that you need is declining rapidly with the new technology. You don't need X square feet per office worker. It's now Y, which is a lot less, and so forth. Uh, where at the same time, housing is in desperate shortage, cultural institutions, history museums and societies uh, need, in fact, uh, a space. So the argument was, let's broaden our focus uh, and give up the putative but unrealistic pleasure uh, of hanging a target sign on us uh, and spend the money more intelligently, and I was suggesting that there were precedents for that in our own history in the construction of social infrastructure, uh, not com simply commercial office space. Ah, there's something going on. Yes, there we go. Am I doing local history? Arguably speaking, there's no such thing as local history. I just don't think you can understand any place, Indianapolis, Little Rock, small towns, properly without setting them in the national and international context of which they are a part. You have to do both. You have to look at how... Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that local history is determined by national or international currents. I'm saying people, uh, as a famous guy once said, people uh, make their own history, but they don't get to make it exactly as they please. They have to make it under circumstances and conditions they've inherited from the past. So I think the same goes for people in any locale. They have to figure out what their local resources are, but also what the possibilities and constraints are that are presented to them by the world of which they are a part. So New York is granted a very big local, and granted there are different uh, degrees of salience and power, let's face it, uh, of different locales within that global grid. 
once you get the spectacular concentration of money uh, and resources and certain kinds of talents together, that has an added weight. You can play uh, in a different way on the global scale. But the phenomena uh, of considering any place on Earth as an interactive uh, uh, matrix uh, between local situation and, and global one, uh, I think requires us to think more broadly about the question of exactly what local means. Well, um, I, I mean, I, I feel considerably less confident and competent to make any remarks than I would have 20 years ago, um, partly because you realize how little you know. Uh, hmm? Oh, repeat the question. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, John wants to know what I think is, in fact, the next likely uh, 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 task, really, of uh, people who want to do uh, public history to be active in sort of the way we've been talking about uh, partly it's because the circumstances are grim. Uh, this is of no consolation to you whatsoever, but I'm just back from Mexico City, where the projected growth rate for next year is minus 12 percent. And the budgets of major cultural institutions have been cut by between 30 to 50 percent overnight. There are exhibitions which were scheduled to go on which are not going to happen. There are entire museums that, in fact, may not be here in a, in a few weeks. Now, it ain't that, uh, but to some extent, in the real world, you can't be, you know, boldly fanciful. Uh, you have to think about uh, defensive uh, positions as well. And the thing that I've, I've had not much time to chat with people who are here but one thing that sort of comes up uh, repeatedly is the notion, and it's built into the AASLation, it's built into what I'm trying to do in New York, uh, is the notion of not facing these kinds of crises as an individual, particularly a small individual institution, to develop methods of cooperation uh, that range from, you know, getting a warehouse and, and jointly storing uh, all of your stuff there with right of withdrawal and right, if you so choose, to let others use your stuff and so that you tap into a larger array of things. You hire collectively a collection manager to, uh, you know, look after things. You hire the kind of technological experts that you're going to need more and more as you go on. Uh, and you develop more as a political force pushing, uh, again, to get some respect uh, for what is, after all, an enormous constituency uh, of people who are into this stuff, but yet just simply is not mobilized. So, honestly, my, my first thought, were I in that situation, and I'm not, happily, I don't own any objects, you know. Uh, all I've got is a pulpit, uh, sort of. Um, but then, uh, you know, I'm stuck in a... In a 60s time frame. I mean, I do think that the degree to which you can get across to people that knowing history is A, fun, because it's incredibly fascinating, but B, allows you to get a handle on your world 
and how you personally or your collective entity can maneuver in the contemporary situation if you understand how the present came to be out of the past, which means understanding that the past is not dead, the past is a river that flows through the present to the degree that you enhance your ability to chart those currents. It won't tell you where things are going, but it will enhance your ability to navigate in whatever direction you want to go. Goldman Sachs, I don't think, wants to go in the direction that I want to go, uh, but they're smart enough to think that you better figure out how things are evolving if you want to stay uh, ahead of the curve. Uh, so... In a sense, I rattled off all these boring titles of, of forums because any one of them could be an exhibition. Any one of them could be a, 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 you know, a, a, a website a, a presentation. Uh, the people who are really going to answer this question, alas, are not you and I of the gray beard and hair, uh, but, you know, the 22-year-olds who are sporting about happily in new, t although I must say, although I, I, I don't know if it's a secret, so I won't say anything about it, but the kind of stuff you've got planned coming up uh, for your institution um, has got fantastic uh, capabilities uh, for doing time travel uh, back into, into, you know, particular periods that in effect also allow you to, uh, underscore the connections between that moment and where you are now. To, en to enhance, I mean, history is empowering, I think. Uh, and, uh, if that mantra is sort of used to guide whatever you're doing, Again, not being simple-minded. The past is different. It must be respected on its own terms. Uh, it must be evoked in all of its, you know, originality. Uh, but there's a web of time, uh, and it's good to keep both points, the now and the then, uh, in mind at the same time. And, and unless John Herbst is going to tell us the secret stuff, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to call it quits. Mike, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure.